Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. We are uh, very excited to have uh, Ambassador Shringler here to give remarks uh, today. Um, I'm going to just start with a few housekeeping items before introducing the ambassador. He's going to speak for 15 to 20 minutes, and then we're going to move to a moderated discussion, um, including getting some Q&A from the audience, some feedback from the audience. So we'd like to leave some time to make this an interactive discussion. But uh, we do have uh, some heritage products on the India-U.S. relationship I want to point you toward. This has been a, a big priority for the Heritage Foundation, for myself, for the U.S. government, frankly, the India-U.S. relationship. And just last night uh, released a new paper, um, Modi 2.0, Navigating Differences and Consolidating Gains in India-U.S. Relations, which looks at the uh, re-election of Prime Minister Modi and, and a BJP government, uh, reviews some of the progress made, in, in fact, some of the remarkable progress made in India-U.S. relations during Modi's first term, and looks ahead to the second term and what we can expect, both in terms of opportunities, but also in terms of, of challenges. Here at Heritage, we're also going to be organizing a, a big conference on India-U.S. relations in uh, October, in, I'm sorry, in September of this year, in partnership with the Observer Research Foundation uh, in India, the largest uh, independent think tank in Delhi. So uh, stay tuned for more information on that. We are inviting uh, several members of Congress, members of Parliament from India. We expect a, a big impact, uh, high-level keynote speakers for that conference. And we're also running a India-U.S.-Israel trilateral uh, strategic dialogue, track two here at Heritage in November. We have a, a long-running Quad Plus dialogue, of which India is a part of, which we began in, in 2013, uh, which this year was held, held in Australia. We're already doing the planning for next year. Uh, we have a book chapter coming out uh, on India's security partnerships in Southeast Asia uh, with the RAND Corporation, and another book chapter coming out later this year on the India-U.S.-China strategic triangle for the Rutledge Handbook on China-India Relations. And we're doing all this because, as I said, India is a priority for the organization, for myself, and for the U.S. government. This is one of our defining partnerships of the 21st century. But um, today we're actually going to not be talking about India-U.S. relations as much, which is a free, frequent topic of interest here, but the priorities of the Modi government in, in, in its second term in the region in particular, its development strategies, and its foreign policy philosophy more broadly. And to do so, we have an extremely uh, esteemed speaker. I've had the pleasure of, of seeing Ambassador Shringla in action in different formats. 
He is uh, incredibly well-informed, incredibly articulate, and uh, incredibly experienced. He is a career diplomat and a member of the Indian Foreign Service since 1984. In 35 years of service, he served as High Commissioner of India to Bangladesh, Ambassador of India to the Kingdom of Thailand. He previously served as Joint, Direct, uh, Joint Secretary, Director General, responsible for Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and the Maldives. He headed the United Nations Political and SARC Divisions in the Ministry of External Affairs and served in various posts in France, Vietnam, Israel, and South Africa. In addition to the English and Indian languages, several Indian languages, Ambassador Shringla speaks French, Vietnamese, and Nepalese, and he assumes his charge uh, as Ambassador to the United States here in January of this year. And with that, sir, I will turn the floor over to you, and we are extremely eager to hear um, what the priorities are for the new Modi government. Thank you. Namaste and uh, good morning uh, to all of our friends. I'm uh, very happy to be here at the Heritage Foundation, an organization with which we've had uh, very long-standing and excellent uh, cooperation. Um, I was uh, also very happy to meet uh, this morning uh, President uh, K. Cole and the Vice President of uh, the Foundation. And I'd like to thank uh, the Heritage Foundation in particular Jeff Smith uh, for hosting me uh, today. And of course, uh, it, it gives me um, even greater pleasure to know that uh, this uh, session is being uh, moderated by someone who is considered to be one of the foremost experts on South Asia. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff, for uh, agreeing to host this uh, session. Uh, I noticed that in your introduction, uh, you used the word incredibly three times for me. And I hope I can live up to that hype. <laughs> Thank you once again. Well, uh, the topic is a rather broad one. Um, it, it seems to uh, cover everything that uh, concerns uh, India's foreign policy under Prime Minister Modi. Um, and so what I'll try to do is to try and put matters in perspective and also try and uh, uh, get you to relate to uh, what we are referring to in terms of my own, um, let's say, experiences as uh, a master under uh, in the government of Prime Minister Modi in three different countries, uh, as you mentioned, in Thailand, uh, in Bangladesh, and now in the United States. Um, well, when you talk about uh, foreign policy, uh, clearly uh, for every state, uh, foreign policy is determined by national interests. In India, we call it uh, Rashtrohit Sarvopari, which is uh, national interest above all. And it's not uh, a new dictum because this is something that uh, is integral to the foreign policy of states. But I think what uh, the Modi government has done is to give it a much sharper focus, to bring foreign policy uh, in much closer alignment with the priorities of the government. And so if you were to uh, define uh, foreign policy under, Modi, under the Modi government, uh, I would say that it would really uh, be an attempt uh, um, to uh, create a strategic, uh, to create an enabling and sustainable environment uh, that would uh, enable you to get the best conditions for national development and growth. And this could be achieved by uh, providing peace and stability, by garnering access to technology, uh, to best practices, to markets, um, and of course, uh, investments. 
and contributing in a constructive manner to the global uh, debate and gender uh, on matters of uh, interest, of global interest. And all of this, of course, uh, as I said, is underpinned really by your priorities in terms of your own development and your own growth. And, um, and one of the ways that I think this was uh, brought into, um, into focus as far as we were concerned, and by we I mean the Indian Foreign Service uh, diplomats that serve under Prime Minister Modi is uh, to, to really orient ourselves, to change our orientations towards seeing how we contribute to that priority, those developmental priorities. In fact, it was under our current uh, External Affairs Minister, Dr. Jay Shankar, that the term diplomacy for development is coined, which is D4D really means that whatever you do in whichever country you're based, you have to ensure that it is contributing in one way or the other to your development priorities, your uh, flagship programs and in initiatives, whether it's uh, Make in India, whether it is the Smart Cities program, whether it is Startup India, Digital India, Namame Ganga or Swachh Bharat Abhiyan. All of these are priority projects and how do you um, access uh, the best possible, um, let's say, uh, link between the country you represent and your priorities. Now, of course, uh, I will come down to that aspect later because we want to, I, I just wanted to put it in perspective. One of the things that I think uh, government, uh, when Prime Minister Modi came to office in 2014, he found was that although we had uh, a fairly robust diplomatic engagement uh, globally, uh, there were many countries that, uh, despite our best efforts, we were not able to engage. In fact, we found that there were close to 40 countries that had never been visited by any ministerial or senior official level delegation uh, in a long time. And so a priority was, was determined to make sure that our engagement at high levels uh, was with as many states as possible. So in the five years of office, uh, uh, in the first term of office, um, we, uh, that means the government of India, ensured that there was a visit at the level of uh, at least of a minister to 189 of the 192 uh, countries in the United Nations. And the three countries that couldn't be visited, which is... Uh, I believe uh, Kiribati, Micronesia, and the Central African Republic was not due to lack of intent, but scheduling issues. And uh, and so 189 or 192 countries were visited in the first term of office, out of which the Prime Minister himself visited 58 countries. And uh, if you look at those 58 countries, obviously they included our uh, major partners, like the United States, and China, Russia, United Kingdom, but it also, Japan, of course, and but also included countries that were off the beaten track. The Prime Minister visited Fiji, in uh, which is, as you know, a Pacific Island state. He visited Rwanda in Africa. He visited Mongolia. And a lot of countries that were not on the track. As a result of which, we were able to uh, set up an organization called FIPIC, the Federation of Indian and Pacific Island Countries. And all heads of state and government of FIPIC countries came to India for one meeting with our government. Similarly, with the African Union, for the first time, we had almost all 54 African heads of state and government come to India for the India-Africa Summit. We had the 10 heads of state and government of ASEAN come on one occasion to commemorate their relationship with India. So these are unprecedented outreach efforts into the international community, the international domain. And I think uh, significant among these 
one of the areas that I would say, besides uh, Africa, reaching out to Africa, Latin America, the Pacific Island states, also a very strong effort to reach out uh, to uh, the Muslim world. Uh, and I'll come to that. I think um, the fact that the Prime Minister has visited a very record number of countries in the Arab world, among the Islamic countries, uh, notably uh, in the Gulf, has been quite uh, a departure from the normal uh, trend of visits abroad. And uh, it is recognized by the fact that our relationship with countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, and other Gulf countries improved dramatically. In fact, Saudi Arabia conferred the highest civilian award named after the father of the king of Saudi Arabia to our prime minister. It's Palestine that conferred the grand collar, uh, the highest Palestinian award to our prime minister. At the same time, uh, Prime Minister Modi was the first prime minister of India to visit the state of Israel. And Prime Minister Netanyahu was the first Israeli prime minister to visit India. But there was no contradiction uh, because I think all countries recognize that our intent was to maintain the best relations and to ensure our relations with these countries uh, remained uh, at a bilateral level, which was uh, important. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think for the first time in 50 years, India was invited as a guest of honor uh, to the Organization of Islamic Countries, the OIC, at uh, their uh, uh, meeting, their conference uh, in the UAE. Uh, and this was, again, uh, as I said, I mean, the last time that India had ever uh, visited uh, or attended the OIC meeting was 1969. So this is a tremendous uh, departure from uh, what has been the norm. So, and, and what I'm trying to illustrate is that this outreach has been uh, not just unprecedented, but also very focused in ensuring that it is uh, directed towards uh, areas that we might have either to neglected or not given the right levels of priority. But on the economic side, on the diplomacy for development, uh, um, I think, again, the effort is led by the Prime Minister because uh, he's had 30 meetings with investors, with top business people outside of India. In other words, when he comes to the United States, he goes to New York and meets investors. He goes to San Francisco, to the Silicon Valley, meets investors. He goes to Sweden, he meets the Scandinavian uh, investors. So wherever he goes, he makes sure that uh, the economic uh, priorities are given, are paramount. And I think that has brought in very useful dividends because in the last five years, we've attracted as much as $260 billion of investments uh, in our country. And, and I think that is a trend that is set to continue, uh, again, in support of our uh, uh, important uh, priorities. Uh, the United States has been uh, a very major partner in that regard. The Prime Minister himself has stated that the United States is our major partner in the socio-economic transformation of India through our flagship schemes and initiatives. In other words, uh, a lot of the um, support for our developmental priorities for our flagship programs has come from the United States in the form of investments, in the form of technology transfers, uh, creating employment, uh, sustainable development, and participation in schemes like the Smart Cities Program, uh, create, creation of 100 smart cities, uh, the Mumbai India Industrial Corridor, uh, the um, Digital India Program, uh, the program to construct metros uh, across uh, cities in India. There are 14 ongoing metro projects across India. In most of these uh, schemes, uh, the United States is involved either 
uh, on a government-to-government basis or uh, through private uh, participation. Uh, so the effort, the outreach effort has to be uh, commensurate uh, in terms of the return. And I think uh, this is something that we are seeing very, very prominently, whether it is countries, uh, whether it's the Temasek Fund of Singapore investing in our national infrastructure investment fund, whether it's the Saudi Arabian sovereignty uh, uh, funds, or whether it is the UAE's funds, the funds from UK that are coming into investment and uh, infrastructure uh, development. These are uh, areas of uh, priority, but also instances where deliverables have been uh, very, very pronounced. Um, there are a few um, foreign policy, uh, let's say, initiatives that uh, deserve mention. Uh, and uh, a lot of them really uh, relate to our own neighborhood or our extended neighborhood. Because for every country, it's absolutely vital that your foreign policy focuses on the environment around you. If you don't have the proper outreach to your own neighbors and your own extended neighbors, then you simply can't manage uh, your relations with uh, with other partners, uh, in international partners. And in that context, I think uh, Prime Minister Modi's neighborhood first priority policy has been a great priority, and one that I've been familiar with uh, over a period of time in uh, in terms of uh, seeing it first time. Um, and of course, this is underpinned also by our Act East policy. It used to be called Look East, and uh, and there was a feeling that uh, you know when when the government came into into when the government of Prime Minister Modi uh, came into office uh, in 2014, that we had been looking east for a long time. It was time to act east, and so the nomenclature was changed to act east. And that priority to look eastward towards uh, our eastern neighbors and the ASEAN and beyond, up to Japan, is something that is an important part of uh, our orientation and uh, particularly the focus towards ASEAN centrality in a lot of our foreign policy, uh, uh, let's say, initiatives. Uh, and the third aspect of this is um, the Indo-Pacific strategy, of course. And this, uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, encompasses a larger area. If our neighborhood first is our immediate neighborhood, our Act East is our extended neighborhood, and our an Indo-Pacific strategy covers a wide swath of area from the United States up to the shores of Africa. Um, and I think it is former Secretary of State who termed it as from Bollywood to Hollywood, or rather Hollywood to Bollywood. But essentially what he meant was that it, it runs from the U.S. to India, uh, we believe that it runs beyond that onto the shores of Africa. So it encompasses a very large part of our uh, extended neighborhood and something that we've been involved with. And when we talk about our immediate neighborhood, of course, our priorities are different there. I mean, when we, one of the slogans of the Prime Minister was uh, Sabka Saad, Sabka Vikas, which means development for all. And this was a domestic uh, agenda. This is something that we brought in uh, within the country. That means you uh, you make sure that it is an inclusive growth and development. It's not just growth, but it's inclusive growth. You take everybody with you. And uh, we have applied it within our immediate neighborhood. In other words, uh, if you have countries in your neighborhood that are not moving as fast as you in terms of growth, development, uh, prosperity, uh, then uh, you clearly have a problem because uh, the nature of our borders with our neighbors is such that uh, you will always, uh, in, I mean, whatever happens there would be would be happening in your country. There is an interlinkage which cannot be avoided. And uh, if you have islands of, uh, let's say, uh, lack of development, then it impacts on your adversity. You cannot grow unless your neighbors grow with you. That's the basic philosophy. 
Now, take the case of Bangladesh, where I was uh, master before coming here. Uh, Bangladesh is a country with whom we share a 4,100-kilometer border. It is three times the size of the border between the United States and Mexico. Uh, it is also a very porous border, which allows uh, a lot of movement of people, uh, despite the best uh, uh, you know, efforts to make sure that uh, international borders are respected. Uh, and and uh, our effort there was to ensure that there is a long-term basis uh, in dealing with uh, with the uh, issues uh, that uh, concerned uh, India and Bangladesh, and uh, and that long-term basis had to be had to be supported. And uh, I think one of the major areas that we could really do it, and I think successfully do so, was to, to invest ten billion dollars in Bangladesh's development. And uh, today we have $10 billion of uh, soft loans uh, and very soft loans in Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh has seen over 6% growth over the last 10 years, today close to 8%. Um, I think the levels of economic development, uh, socioeconomic development, uh, rate of uh, unemployment, uh, which is very low, has been of great satisfaction to us. And I think that has contributed enormously, not only to addressing uh, the issues that were constantly there between our two countries, whether it was illegal immigration, whether it was uh, uh, other issues relating to uh, economic disparities, today are a thing of, the, I mean, today are not as relevant as they were several years ago because Bangladesh's development today is at a level which is, uh, you know, among the highest in South Asia. And, uh, and of course, uh, I think that policy has also taught us benefit because with Bangladesh's development, parts of our own country have seen development. The northeastern India, states of Meghalaya, uh, Mizoram, Tripura, Assam, bordering uh, Bangladesh have also seen a resurgence of uh, trade, investments, um, economic contact, tourism that has uh, rejuvenated uh, our economies respectively. So it has helped us uh, in that sense. The trilateral highway that we are creating between India Myanmar and Thailand, that highway that would take us, uh, provide a terrestrial route between India and ASEAN is something that uh, would be a game changer. The Kaladan multimodal transport uh, transit project, which is essentially to take a road from the state of Mizoram through the Rakhine state uh, in Myanmar into uh, access to the sea. Uh, that means the northeast of India, which is a landlocked area, would get access to the sea uh, through Myanmar, access to the sea through the ports of Chittagong and uh, and Mongla in Bangladesh uh, would again be a game changer in in the development of part in, of part of India that has not grown as fast as the rest of India has, and that's because their economic uh, economic uh, opportunities lay with their immediate uh, neighbors, uh, uh, which were uh, those that were their trading partners earlier. Uh, a state like Meghalaya produces coal, um, uh, limestone, rock boulders, vegetables, uh, bamboo. The natural market for that is just below the hills in Bangladesh, uh, not further beyond into the rest of uh, India. So as we integrate, as our, these countries invest in the development of our friends, our partners, our neighbors, uh, it is something that brings us benefit. And we are seeing it in very stark terms. Going beyond, of course, uh, um, you know, the uh, when we talk about the Indo-Pacific, uh, we're talking about uh, an open, transparent, inclusive free region that we'd like to see in uh, conformity with our own values, principles, and ideals. And uh, we work with uh, 
with all concerned. It's not uh, a concept that is exclusive, mutually exclusive. It's a concept that is mutually inclusive. That means you want countries, you want everybody to be part of that effort. And it is uh, something that we are, um, that is that we are already, uh, let us say, pursuing in the normal course. Uh, we say that uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, we are first responders. We are net security providers. What does that mean? It means that uh, when in March this year, there was a major hurricane in Mozambique and the eastern coast of Africa, uh, our uh, ships uh, were the first to reach to provide medicines, uh, food aid, uh, set up hospitals. In the central Sulawesi province of Indonesia last year in October, uh, when there was a tsunami and an earthquake, our aircraft were the first to land there to provide relief and, and uh, medicines, set up field hospitals. When um, the Maldives were suffering from an acute water shortage, uh, we were the first to respond to that and provide drinking water to the people of Maldives. Uh, when Bangladesh had an influx of 400,000 refugees in a, in a short span of uh, a month or two, uh, our aircraft were the first to deliver immediate uh, assistance uh, to uh, meet that humanitarian emergency. In Sri Lanka, when there was a um, sim similar um, hurricane, a cyclone, uh, again, we were the first to respond to that. So what I'm trying to say is that as a country that's situated uh, on the Indian Ocean uh, that uh, has easy access uh, to many of the countries uh, that are affected uh, by natural disasters, uh, uh, I think it is important that uh, as friends uh, and as partners, we are uh, quick to come to their assistance. Similarly, um, by net security providers, I mean, uh, we what the concept really means is it's in a positive way. Uh, you have anti-piracy operations. Uh, we've been part of the, uh, of the effort to ensure that there is patrolling off the Gulf of Aden. Uh, we've always had uh, at least two frigates deployed in the Gulf of Aden to provide assistance to any ship that is uh, on that channel, uh, which is uh, facing the threat of piracy. If you have a marine pollution issue, uh, we want to make sure that in cooperation with our friends in Maldives, Sri Lanka, Mauritius, Seychelles, uh, we are there to provide that effort. When I was a master in Thailand, uh, we uh, signed an agreement with Thailand to provide to work on areas that would bring the benefits of the blue economy. In other words, areas like white shipping, areas like uh, marine pollution, areas like uh, joint and coordinated patrols, uh, within our territorial waters. These are areas that we uh, initiated, and we are doing uh, so increasingly with our friends in the ASEAN countries, friends in our neighborhood. And uh, uh, we are also looking at enhanced connectivity, uh, enhanced uh, economic uh, development and cooperation. I mentioned some of that, even beyond our immediate neighborhood. So that part of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which is uh, uh, a sort of a positive uh, interface with our neighbors, a way in which we can uh, work with them uh, to get uh, the best results out of the requirements of all our countries. Uh, the initiative to set up an international solar alliance, essentially for countries between the tropics of Capricorn and Cancer initially, which meant that these are countries that have abundant sunshine, but don't have the resources, technology, capacity, and know-how to convert that natural resource into an important source of energy. We in India have a self-declared objective to meet 40% of our energy requirements through 
uh, non-fossil fuels, in other words, new and renewable sources of energy by the year 2030. Uh, we want to make sure that, I mean, we are well on our way to meeting it because we have the intention of creating 175 gigawatts of energy capacity out of which uh, about 75 gigawatts have already been installed. But we want to work with uh, our other uh, friends in, in ensuring that they have the capacity. And uh, the International Solar Alliance today has been so successful that it is no longer confined to those countries. Every country uh, has been invited to join this effort. And we've got a very large number of uh, countries in the UN. Uh, UN member states were part of this effort. And we intend to raise uh, between us and the other organizers of the International Solar Alliance up to $1.5 trillion in providing this assistance in developing solar energy capacity to countries all over the world. So uh, these are, again, some examples of what we could do on a global basis to mitigate climate change. We have a major climate change conference in the United Nations uh, on the 23rd of September. And Prime Minister is uh, uh, the guest of honor uh, in that uh, particular conference. Um, and this is uh, really in recognition of our own contribution and our own efforts to ensure that uh, uh, there is international activity which uh, seeks to do something about it. It's not enough to talk about it. It's not enough to say that there is uh, the inherent danger of, of climate change that can affect all our lives, but there is the will to do something which is important. We start with ourselves, expand it to other countries, and make sure that uh, there is enough uh, uh, of an effort and enough uh, support there uh, to meet their own requirements in that regard. So um, I know that you'd give me probably well beyond my my time. Uh, I think it's, it's probably better if we take a pause here and respond to questions. Uh, do, it, do it from the podium or from the stage? Podium is fine. Oh. I'm, I'm good with it. They're all there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to start uh, really just touching off a point that you made about the Indo-Pacific. And I wanted to ask, um, we hear a lot about the Indo-Pacific strategy in the U.S., and we've heard in recent years India come to embrace the concept of the Indo-Pacific and talk more about the Indo-Pacific being free and open. And I just wanted uh, to get your thoughts on, is there any real divergence between the two visions? We don't share the same Indo-Pacific strategy, but when you actually break down the underlying principles, they look very similar to me. Um, so are, are the U.S. and India really on the same page when it comes to promoting a, a vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific? Well, the Indo-Pacific as a concept is a rel relatively recent one. Yeah. And there's a lot more work that has to be done in developing that concept further. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, of course, I think uh, the basic principles of that concept are the same, uh, which really means that uh, you want the Indo-Pacific uh, to... to, to uh, be a region uh, that uh, that you uh, on principles and and the basis on which you uh, yourself exist and and that you believe that others should as well um, in, to ensure that uh, um, that there is uh, um, you know that international um, uh, rules and laws govern the way you uh, conduct yourself uh, in terms of uh, disputes that you may have in terms of the uh, you know, common spaces that we uh, occupy in uh, whether it is uh, navigation, freedom of navigation, the seas, uh, open skies policies, uh, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, a transparent system of, of uh, development, uh, expanding connectivity. These are all principles that are the same. 
I don't think there's any uh, divergence. I think it's a question of uh, fleshing it out further, mm. working further on how this concept has to work uh, in a manner uh, that is, in our view, uh, as I said, inclusive mm. uh, and not directed uh, against anyone. It is it's something that we want to uh, make sure that we work with as many partners as possible mm. um, in, a, in, a, in a positive way and to help others and to help ourselves. Thank you. Um, at the risk of causing an insurrection in the audience, we are not uh, going to make this Q&A session about Kashmir. But given the uh, prevalence of this I issue in the, in the news cycle, uh, I did want to give you an opportunity to maybe offer some thoughts on uh, recent developments over the past 24 hours, which have, have uh, obviously captured the attention here in Washington. Well, uh, you know, the, the reorganization of the state of Jammu and Kashmir into uh, two union territories uh, with their own council and legislature uh, is an administrative decision. Uh, it is uh, a decision which uh, seeks to ensure uh, that we provide for better uh, governance, good governance. We ensure that the socioeconomic benefits uh, that go to accrue to citizens of India also go to citizens of uh, Jammu and Kashmir, particularly disadvantaged sections of the population there, uh, to ensure that any uh, disparities uh, on issues like gender are taken into account. And of course, uh, at the end of the day, uh, um, you know, it is also uh, something that uh, um, has been, uh, uh, has not been a new concept in India. This is the, this is the 12th reorganization of states that we are uh, going through in India. It is uh, something that does not in any way um, touch upon or affect uh, the line of control, uh, the international boundary, and therefore does not have any impact on our relationship uh, with any other state. It's an internal matter of India's. Um, I think there's also been, uh, some of us would have seen the debates in Parliament. Uh, it's also been pointed out that uh, uh, to, to expand on what I mentioned about good governance and socioeconomic benefits, uh, we have seen that uh, a lot of the developmental funds that have been provided by the center, and the center has been very generous to the state of Jammu and Kashmir, have been really, uh, uh, you know, uh, garnered or exploited by a small uh, group of uh, individuals who have been politically connected in that state. And uh, the idea of... Uh, um, converting this into union territories to ensure that those uh, development benefits go directly to the people of Jammu and Kashmir. If you want to address some of the issues, the long-standing grievances of many of the uh, issues afflicting the state economically, uh, you need to ensure that those funds, development funds, uh, go to those sections of the population that need it, whether it's youth, it's disadvantaged sections, it's women. This is something that we will prioritize and channelize uh, uh, now with the reorganization of the state. The second, of course, is that private investments have not come <coughs> to uh, the people of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, that's because of the restraining and constraining features uh, of uh, the existing Articles uh, 370 and 35A, which preclude uh, outside uh, investments, outside uh, involvement in the development of the state. Uh, and so we are going to see a lot of private sector efforts uh, through the chambers of commerce, uh, through um, the economic vehicles uh, that would mobilize uh, private investments and funding uh, into the state. So I think we will see a great deal of change for the better. Uh, 
It would be um, greatly beneficial for the development of the state, uh, for the benefit of the uh, younger section of the population of Jammu and Kashmir. They would see a much brighter future uh, through the reorganization of states. And also, I think uh, some of the media have made mention about, uh, you know, uh, Muslim-majority state. Uh, um, I, what I want to uh, point out here is that uh, it was in 1947 when we attained our independence that we rejected the notion of states being formed on the basis of religion. And Pakistan was formed on the basis of religion. It became an Islamic republic. But that notion, too, was rejected when Bangladesh broke away. That's East Pakistan broke away when Pakistan became a separate country, which is today a secular republic. Um, it is a country that coexists happily with its minority of Hindus, Christians, and Buddhists. And uh, so uh, I think that notion of uh, the creation of states based on religion is something that we don't believe in. We are a, a secular democratic republic. Uh, we believe in the freedom of all religions. And therefore, uh, the fact that uh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir should be a state which is uh, linked to a minority, I think, is something that integrally goes against uh, the basic principles of the Constitution and the ideal that we believe in. You would have seen recently that we brought in uh, legislation also to do away with a very archaic practice of what is called triple talaq, which uh, really meant that under the, uh, uh, the uh, Muslim uh, code uh, in India, um, the Indian personal laws were, were based really on religion, and some of these uh, uh, laws were anachronisms. I mean, many of the uh, Islamic countries themselves have done away with these laws. And so it was the government of Prime Minister Modi that came out and brought in legislation, which was supported by uh, Parliament, uh, to do away with uh, the concept of triple talaq, which meant that a Husband, uh, of, uh, you know, in a Muslim family, husband could say talaq three times and his wife is divorced. It's simple as that. And uh, so, obviously, in modern society, this is no longer acceptable. And so we brought in a change that was long necessary. Uh, so the basic principle is that, uh, A, it is uh, an internal matter because it's an administrative decision. B, is that deci decision is good for the people of Jammu and Kashmir, both in terms of uh, good governance, socioeconomic justice, and benefits. And C is that uh, it does not in any way have any bearing on our relations with any other state. Uh, uh, and I think uh, over time we will see that this has been a decision that has been really to the benefit of the very people uh, it uh, tends to, it impacts on, which is the people of Jammu and Kashmir. Thank you. And um, one more question before moving to, to the audience. Um, and that is if you could speak a little bit about opportunities and challenges you see in India-U.S. relations moving forward. I'm sort of the, been the eternal optimist on, on India-U.S. relations. And I think uh, really we had a, a, a remarkable progress on the strategic partnership during Prime Minister Modi's first term. But, but I also recognize there's now a set of challenges um, on trade, on, on sanctions that – you know, is arguably more formidable than than those we've been facing over the past ten years. Um, we've done a good job managing those disputes, but they're still there. And so, I wonder, uh, as you look forward, what, what do you see as the biggest challenges and biggest opportunities for India-U.S. relations? Well, uh, I think today India-U.S. relations uh, are, uh, in many senses, uh, um, represent. Uh, 
an enviable situation, uh, you know, to be seen between states. I mean, we have a comprehensive partnership that is uh, uh, political, uh, strategic. Uh, uh, it involves a, a strong economic dimension. It involves people-to-people -people contacts. And it is one that has, I think, developed uh, very quickly uh, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years and uh, reached a situation where I think there is strong traction for uh, a good relationship uh, among the people of both our countries. So as democracies, I think that is an important factor, that uh, support uh, from uh, the people of both our countries uh, for a good relationship uh, is what drives us uh, closer. Um, and we, of course, um, you know, uh, understand that this relationship uh, should not be seen in a short-term perspective. Uh, we see it in a long-term perspective, not just four or five years hence, but 50 years down the line. What is our strategic partnership? Where would we end up? How do we cooperate? Um, obviously, uh, you know, the basic ingredients that uh, uh, the inherent factors that contribute to the relationship are there, which is essentially that we're both strong democracies. Uh, we believe in a rule of law. Uh, we share the same values, ideals, and principles. And this is what uh, ensures that uh, that our relationship uh, will move forward uh, irrespective of some of the minor speed bumps that come along the way. So we certainly see the relationship uh, as uh, one that uh, should be seen uh, in a long-term perspective and that many of these issues that uh, may arise as you go along can be addressed uh, and can be addressed effectively. One of the issues, you talked about challenges, one of the issues is trade. As the United States seeks to recalibrate its trading relations with not just India, but with countries across the globe, uh, I think uh, we are happy to engage in that effort. And uh, at uh, the in the margins of the G20 in Osaka, uh, Prime Minister Modi and President Trump decided that they would uh, ask the ministers concerned uh, to meet and to um, address some of these issues. So we are confident that we will have a meeting soon uh, between our commerce and industry minister and uh, the USTR, Ambassador Lighthizer, and that meeting would uh, enable us to reach uh, conclusions that are mutually beneficial and satisfactory. Mm -hmm. And you have, you will have other issues like this as you go along. And I have no doubt that we have both uh, the mechanisms and uh, the uh, required uh, will, political will, to address uh, these issues as people. But the important thing is that it is a strategic partnership. Uh, it has to be, uh, the momentum of that partnership has to be sustained. It has to be seen in a long-term perspective and one that I think uh, has the inherent, uh, uh, let us say, uh, basis on which we can uh, take this relationship forward. Thank you. So maybe we could grab two or three questions at, at a clip from the audience. I'll start here and work our way back. Uh, good morning. I'm Chris Orr, a current DOD contractor, former Air Force officer, former Homeland Security, and last but not least, former Heritage Foundation Asian Study Center intern back in the day. Mr. Ambassador, Your Excellency, Namaste Ji, Kaisei Hup. At the risk of uh, stirring the pot a little bit, I'm going to ask a question about Pakistan, specifically uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan. Thus far from what I've heard, he seems to be sincere in his efforts to uh, root out corruption and reform his government. Uh, that being said, do you think he has the willingness and ability to rein in the ISI, particularly the rather uh, cozy relationship with the Haqqani Network uh, terrorist organization? Thank you. So, Korea. Do you want to take a few at a time? Yeah, I think I should. And uh, one here? 
Uh, hi, Ambassador. My name is Anshu. I'm a reporter with uh, Inside U.S. Trade in Washington. Uh, in, with relation to the India-ASEAN relationship, I was wondering if you could comment on India's participation in the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, and whether you think India will uh, participate in that and is it in their seeking conclusion by the end of this year. Thank you. And uh, a third in the back. Cliff Smith, Middle East Forum. Um, I wondered if you could comment on uh, Jamaati Islami's role in fermenting violence in um, Kashmir. I know that they have uh, recently, um, there's been people that have been removed from leadership of mosques and such, and I wondered uh, what you saw their role as and how you saw the U.S. Um, and Europe um, as part of that in terms of their fundraising networks and things of that nature. Maybe we could address those and then take another call. But, um, let's start with the easy ones first in Pakistan. Uh, Well, uh, you know, our position has always been that uh, whatever uh, we uh, talk about uh, in terms of uh, uh, the efforts, uh, uh, you know, to develop, uh, uh, you know, a new, uh, let's say, approach uh, to some of the issues uh, that are related to Pakistan, um, uh, what is important is the actions uh, and those actions, uh, as far as uh, and one of the main issues that affect both the United States and India is the issue of terrorism. And we believe that those actions should be credible, uh, verifiable, uh, and uh, those that are, you know, in the long term uh, sustainable. So um, when we talk about uh, steps that are taken, uh, we need to make sure that they are, um, you know, steps that are, that can be uh, over a certain period of time verified as being uh, serious, credible steps uh, towards addressing the issue of terrorism, and uh, and I think uh, it's a similar issue. Um, you know, the question about the GEI. Uh, clearly, um, uh, you know, there have been concerns over uh, the issues of terrorist fundings. The FATF has been uh, very concerned about uh, the fact that uh, Pakistan has been in the grey list. Uh, for uh, um, not uh, taking steps to address the issue of terrorist funding. And uh, these are some of the serious things that need to be addressed. You know, the FATF has to be uh, satisfied uh, that uh, the steps on the ground uh, through legislation, uh, through actions, uh, are uh, credible and verifiable uh, to enable the international community to believe that uh, there is a new approach towards dealing with uh, long-standing problems of uh, terrorism that have afflicted not just uh, India, uh, Afghanistan, the United States, but the rest of the world. And so we have to see uh, how that goes. Uh, As far as uh, RCEP is concerned, uh, this is an important, uh, uh, let's say, trade grouping that includes the ASEAN countries, includes uh, India, it includes uh, um, South Korea, Japan. uh, And I think uh, we uh, do believe that uh, this is... uh, um, an area where uh, we are keen to see a certain outcome. Uh, we, I think, recently participated in the RCEP meeting about a week ago, uh, or a few days ago. Our Commerce Secretary was there, and uh, we are hopeful for of an early satisfactory outcome that could benefit the trading relationships uh, between all these uh, countries, which are members of RCEP. Hi, Ambassador. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Uh, Vivek Mishra from the Stimson Center. Uh, my question ties in with uh, Jeff's first question about Indo-Pacific strategy and 
convergences between India and the United States. And my specific question is towards, uh, you know, India's effort to sort of dehyphenate the Quad and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and, and the United States, of course, sees it as a, um, as a package. Uh, do you think, uh, how, how do you think we'll reckon, the two countries will reconcile uh, this nuanced difference? Thank you. Hi, my name is Rahul. I'm a college student and an intern for Congresswoman Kathleen Rice. I was wondering if you could comment on what steps the Modi government is taking to retain top Indian talent within the country um, and keep them there, especially those who are college educated. Yeah, uh, my name is Anil Sigdal from Nepal, Maris for America. Your Excellency, my question, since you talked about the neighborhood policy and development, uh, for instance, in the case of Nepal, India exports about three times more than what it does to Russia, two times more than what it does to Australia. For some reason, it doesn't feature here in this report. So my question is obviously the deficit is very large, and these it makes sense for these countries to try to do more transactions with China. And China obviously eyed that opportunity there. And at this moment, Modi government seems like doesn't doing anything on that. So my question to you will be like Modi to zero will be doing something on this. Thank you very much. One final in the back. Sorry. Hi, uh, thank you. My name is Dimitri. Thank you, Ambassador. I was just wondering if you could say a word or two about India's relationship with Russia currently. Thank you. Um, let me uh, begin by this time uh, taking the most uh, difficult question, which is one on top Indian talent and, and the sort of uh, concept of uh, brain drain, as we used to call it. But uh, to answer that, uh, if you permit, I will just uh, go back uh, a few years in. Uh, and this is a story that many of my colleagues have heard. So at the risk of repetition, uh, you, I used to be um, attached to uh, Narasimha Rao, who, when he was education minister at, at one stage, and um, he was drafting the education policy. This I'm talking about 30 years ago, so it's a long time back. And uh, I asked him, I said, uh, you know, so many of our best uh, minds, people who have been educated in some of the best uh, public institutions in India, medical institutions, engineering institutions, are going abroad, going to the U.S. and other countries. It's a major brain drain. It's, it's something that we should do something to address. And uh, he told me, and this is a very interesting reply he gave, he said, you know, uh, we are not in the business of uh, restricting people, restraining people. Uh, today, the economy doesn't have the capacity to absorb so many people of, of that uh, capacity and that uh, level of uh, uh, human resource development. But he says one day, uh, probably there will be a time in which these people will come back and they'll invest back in India. They'll bring their knowledge and know-how back and uh, contribute to the development of our country. And I think that day has come. Uh, today, we see a lot of uh, people of uh, Indian origin all over the world, but uh, a lot of them in the United States, who are investing back in India, uh, investing in startups, investing in major companies, investing through venture capital funds, uh, who are providing technology, and many of them are also sharing their expertise. I think that was your question. Uh, we have a program uh, called Gyan, 
which really uh, you know encourages and channelizes uh, some of the um, highly educated people uh, to go back to india and to teach uh, to share their knowledge and that program tends to uh, uh, link you up with the institution that's most suitable if you are someone who's got who's a phd in, in a certain area of biotechnology uh, which is the institute and which is the means by which you can really contribute i mean so that program is a very active program and i think uh, it it contributes and we have our science and technology counselor here uh, mr dhananjay tiwari uh, he is the point person in our embassy uh, to uh, look at such uh, you know uh, helping uh, or rather linking up uh, people with uh, talent of people of indian origin who want to go back and contribute and uh, please feel free to get in touch and uh, for us uh, the other day we had a very useful a seminar for with about 35 postdoc fellows uh, uh, who are undergoing the MCI program here uh, we had uh, the director general of the indian medical council uh, uh, center as well as the uh, dean of research in jnu who then uh, walked them through where they could possibly contribute what are the uh, you know the areas that they could contribute where in india they could go and uh, make that difference and so um, we uh, that's a good question and we are receptive uh, to uh, what you asked and to see how we can uh, be a help in that regard um the uh, question about uh, the quad and indo pacific uh, well uh, look i mean um, members of the quad and the quad is a concept that is still uh, developing uh, it is still uh, a group that uh, you know is uh, is 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 meeting on areas that uh, where we have common interests in common projects uh, common developmental priorities uh, and uh, it it was never a part of the indo pacific strategy indo pacific is different uh, the quad is a concept that is different and i don't think the two are uh, really um, exactly on the same uh, let's say page when it comes to uh, uh, strategies uh, and and uh, as i said again these are being developed these are being fleshed out so it's early in the game but i don't think we have any difference uh, with the us in 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 categorizing where these two uh, different concepts uh, come in um let me move on to the question on nepal uh, nepal is one of our closest uh, neighbors uh, one of the most important countries with which we have a relationship um it uh, i think is a relationship that uh, is so special that we don't need visas to go into each other's countries nepalese citizens can work in india um there is no restrictions in doing business uh, i know that a very large number of uh, citizens in nepal are employed in different professions particularly in uh, in the indian army where the gorkha regiments are mainly uh, consist of uh, of uh, personnel drawn from nepal now um there is a trade deficit because uh, i think uh, nepal takes a lot of its uh, its uh, essentials from india uh, it does not mean that that trade deficit has to continue i think the solution really is for more investments more joint ventures more capacity creation in nepal uh, and uh, to work together to to provide the basis by which uh, nepal's own potentials uh, can increase and i think one way we are doing it is so is through hydroelectric projects that we are jointly developing we are developing at least three projects including the pancheshwar project and these would bring benefits to both countries if you seen the bhutan example these are mutually beneficial projects 
In Bhutan, we have developed 1,400 megawatts of hydroelectric capacity. These are run of the river. They're not environmentally damaging. At the same time, they bring, uh, contribute to 70% of Bhutan's revenue. We are developing another 3,000 megawatts in, Japan, in, in, in Bhutan. And similarly with Nepal, I think the capacity that we developed through hydroelectric energy, which could have been done uh, when I was dealing with Nepal in 1997, we signed the Pancheshwar Agreement. Um, and I think if that could have been realized today, uh, it would have been a different uh, story. But we still, I think the basis of it is there and we can still cooperate to have a partnership that is win-win, that's mutually beneficial. Use the resources that you have uh, to the benefit of both countries. And, and I think no better way than hydroelectric power, greater connectivity, joint ventures, investments. Um, with uh, regard to Russia, yes, of course, Russia has always been an important uh, uh, partner of India's. We have uh, a strong uh, relationship which is based on people-to-people um, -people contact, uh, based on, you know, uh, and there was a time in which uh, uh, film industry in Bollywood had a major impact on Russia. I think it was it was brought us closer together. Uh, subsequently, of course, uh, oil and gas and energy is a very major aspect of our partnership. And, and I think... Uh, uh, it goes without saying that uh, that uh, uh, historically there's been a close relationship, and that relationship uh, certainly is underpinned by you know strong ties uh, that uh, will continue uh, over time. Well, thank you uh, very much. I'd like to ask the audience to join me in thanking the ambassador for really a, a tour de force through the Modi government's priorities, foreign policy and development priorities. Again, another thank you to the ambassador. Thank you to the audience for taking time out of your day uh, to spend this with us. And if you remain interested in, in India and the India-U.S. relationship, stay tuned because there's more to come. Thank you. 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 Thank